if you're a plant touching company, the biggest lever that you have for increasing your profitability is getting your yields up. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Scott Campbell, president of Adium. Scott, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Excited to dive in. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Uh, really excited to talk to Scott. Really, really excited to nerd out on some data and, and science around the industry. How are you doing today, Brian? I'm excited. And yes, Scott is from the West Coast. Kellen, you don't need to ask. We can get right to it. And appreciate Jordan Zager for making that introduction and Washington doing its thing from a science standpoint. So Scott, for our listeners that aren't familiar about you, can you give a little background about yourself and how someone with a Wharton MBA got into the cannabis industry? Yeah, thanks. Uh, I mean, for us it, and for me in particular, it, it's kind of a long road, but I... Uh, grew up in this little college town where where our business is. And my dad was a professor at the university. And he had an idea for a scientific instrument that he wanted to sell to his colleagues. This was, you know, when I was just a kid. And and uh, so 40 years ago, in the early 80s, he started a company that eventually became Adium, uh, the company that we have today. And the business grew and grew over time, but mostly focused in two areas, ag research and uh, quality control for, uh, for um, mostly food processing. So I left and went away, uh, left Pullman, got a business degree, as you as you mentioned, at, at Warden, worked at some other companies, and eventually uh, made my way back to Pullman and started running that, that family business that my dad had. And about seven years ago, um, we started looking around, and instead of just being a company that made test and measure uh, equipment, we started to see these changes in the market that, that indicated... People, it's not just about the, the measurement anymore. It's about how to use that measurement in IoT, you know, distributed networks, IoT, um, AI, machine learning. That's really the future. And if we don't get involved in that world, um, we're just going to get left behind and kind of commoditized as a, as a sensor company. And in looking for applications uh, of the of using the sensor data to improve outcomes for companies that was just the time that the cannabis industry started uh, was was in a nascent at kind of a growth uh, period and you know it, it's it's a little bit ironic and and strange i come from a huge family i'm number 6 of 9 kids um it's a big mormon family not really the type of background you would assume um would be would get into uh, or be interested in growth areas in cannabis but it was around that time I got into a mountain biking accident and broke my back and had a lot of chronic pain issues associated with that. And in reading the literature and started understanding more about the cannabis plant, I actually um, started using THC and cannabis to deal with that um, chronic pain that I had from, from the accident. It took me a long time to recover. Nerves grow back really slowly. And it just completely changed my perspective on the potential for this plant and also what it would mean to society at large. And the other fascinating thing that happened was that uh, when we would take our our science expertise out to the cannabis industry, these were uh, the growers and the producers were really would just suck it up. They were so interested in learning and uh, improving. And this is totally different than all the other ag industries that we'd operated in the past. And we said, this is different. This is this is something that we that we have to uh, develop products for. And that's how we made the Arroyo uh, business. We launched a product in December of 2019 and uh, have um, about 600 facilities now that that use Arroyo. 
for crop cycle monitoring and crop cycle improvement. Yeah, I appreciate you breaking that down and I'm excited to kind of hear more about that. And especially it's, it's great hearing someone like yourself who has one experience with cannabis and then moves into the industry. So let's stay early on. Your team, Food & Bev, very established industry, utilizes these sensors. The ag tech industry also utilizes sensors. The cannabis industry, what is our current state from a sensor standpoint? How how common are these? And Give some background on your team's role and, and how they differ between the industries, specifically here in cannabis. Yeah, I mean, cannabis Cannabis is just totally fascinating and unique. You know, if we look at the plant, the it's like I've heard it called like, like trying to grow apples with no skin on them. It's a very delicate plant. It's very, you know, in some ways it's super resilient. In some ways it's kind of temperamental. And the, the thing that makes it super unique is that it's valuable enough that it can, that you can spend money on increasing yields and collecting data and you can uh, get that, that increase is going to hit your bottom line more immediately. And, you know, in a highly competitive industry, more making more of an impact than it would say with soybeans or, you know, or something like even, uh, more specialty crops like apples, for example. So, so that makes cannabis, um, that makes cannabis a great target for, uh, sensor data and sensor data collection. But to your, uh, question, Brian, only about 10% of indoor cannabis cultivation uh, facilities have a what we call a crop cycle monitoring system, which is you're gathering all the data. And so we're here, we're talking about substrate data. So the hydroponic substrate that the plants are growing, typically cocoa or rock wool, um, you have a substrate sensor in those plants uh, testing for poor water EC, uh, water content and temperature. You have climate sensors, testing for relative humidity, uh, temperature, VO2 concentration, and uh, light intensity. And then you're writing all that data back to the cultivar record. And in the cultivar record, you're also measuring how much yield you're getting. And so a lot of people, you know, we never go to any facilities that don't have data flowing. But a lot of this data is trapped in the control system where it can't ever be used for analytics. Or the data is trapped in the the seed to sale system, which doesn't have any cultivation data in it, and that's just as good as it being thrown away. And so, facilities that really actually have some system for uh, deploying these sensors, having all the data written to the cultivar record, you know, the penetration rate still only around ten percent, which is high compared to other industries, but it still leaves a lot of people who um, are missing out on the the efficiencies and improvements you can get from crop cycle monitoring uh, systems. And so, I'm not sure. Did I answer your question? Yeah, Scott. So these sensors, were these custom sensors that your group had to kind of develop specifically for the cannabis industry? Or was it kind of you had a lot of the bare bones from other industries and you were able to kind of put them together and just apply them to the cannabis industry? Uh, more the latter. You know, temperature and and uh, CO2, RH, those are pretty standard and most people have, I mean, th- th- there's a way to do that right and wrong, but but most people have um, reasonable sensors for climate. Light is a little more specialized and we work with Apogee on that one, um, but the substrate sensor is really the thing that made us and has made us different. Um, and that came out of some work that we did with a company in Holland called Grodan, which is the you know largest um, uh, rock wool uh, you know, Stonewall substrate company in the world. And in 2010, 2011, we started working with them on developing a substrate sensor that would more accurately measure poor water EC. And so 
you know, the Dutch greenhouses are the most productive in the world. So we essentially cut our teeth on making these substrate sensors for Grodan and Grodan sold them. We didn't, we didn't sell them to other people. And it wasn't until maybe eight or nine years after we went to market with that sensor that we took that exact same sensor and adapted it for cannabis. So we already had that, but we had it because we had been working on these high-tech greenhouses in Holland. And so we then switched gears and put them into cannabis. The interesting thing about cannabis is that the thing that we're the, we're the best at measuring that poor water EC, cannabis is probably the most responsive plant in production to getting that poor water EC right at different phases of growth. And so that thing that we happen to be good at, which is measuring poor water EC, just happens to be that cannabis is not only the most valuable cash crop in the world, but it also responds really well to to osmotic stress, which is what our sensor measures. That's a that's a nice pairing you found. I'm sure once you saw the data, you you kind of looked at each other and like we got something here. Yeah, exactly. But the funny thing is, it goes back 40 years to to. In fact, it even goes back further than that to um, to the 60s when my dad was writing his dissertation. His academic work was on plant water stress in native soils, and the only difference is if if you're growing something outside, those native soils. Uh, stress the roots of plants using um, matrix stress. And that's what his research was on. When you grow plants indoors in hydroponic substrates, you stress the roots of plants using osmotic stress. So it's the concentration of salts. And salts build up in the root zone when plants take up water and, and they leave more salt than they leave water. And so the roots start to feel stress and plants are just kind of like humans. Some stress is good. A lot of stress is bad. And so it was that early work that my dad did I mean, gosh, that's that's over 50 years ago now that eventually ended up being useful in uh, in cannabis. I think that's one of my favorite parts of having conversations with people in the industry is just understanding that the technology that's being applied that's actually not yet being applied exists in outside industries. And it's just a matter of integrating inside because like you were saying, 50 years tried and true. This is not something that just made up on the side of the street, came in and said, hey, Welcome to Cannabis. I'd like to try this product. It, it is established. Right. It works. And it makes a big difference. So let's go back to the 10%. What do you think is the biggest hindrance for these operators today for, let's say, adopting a, a technology like yourself that makes a big difference? Yeah. You know, I think that's a, that's a tough one because I think it, it just relates to the resistance that we've had in general agriculture, getting people to use data to improve their operations. And there's a couple of data points here, Brian. The first being like, can you name uh, like a software only ag tech company that has been successful? And I can't do it. You know, I, I see some that have been commercially successful at raising funds, you know, like the semioses of the world. And I see some old school companies like John Deere that have ag tech operations that are that are getting big. But the, the thing is, agriculture in general is just hugely skeptical of new stuff. And We've seen this in industry after industry after industry. So if I compare cannabis to that and 10% penetration rate over the last four years, I think we're doing okay. There's still huge opportunities to, to grow, but I'm optimistic because the people are using it and getting value out of it today. The biggest impediment, and this is, we can talk about competitors that, that we might have in the industry. Our biggest competitor is just non-consumption. And, you know, a good analogy might be not everybody tracks their calories. Okay. I'm kind of into health and fitness stuff. I love cycling and uh, like road biking. And um, most people don't count their calories. At the end of the day, the amount, you know, what, what you weigh as a person is just 
the laws of thermodynamics. You take a certain amount in, you burn a certain amount, and that's that's what it is. And there are lots of people who are fit, fit and healthy and don't you know don't count anything. And there's lots of growers out there that are succeeding um, without doing any um, cycle you know, crop cycle intelligence, crop cycle monitoring stuff. And you don't have to have these things to grow plants. The thing is that that if you don't have a plan for getting better, the other people in the industry who do are going to outcompete you. So I think that the the complacency, Brian, comes from, from this idea of, well, I don't want anybody to tell me how to grow plants. You know, I, I, grew, I grew up with a garage grow and and uh, I have all these special strains that I love, and I'm a master grower. Um, that's you know, and these growers are master growers. Okay, so I'm I'm not saying that that they're not. The key though is how do you stay a master grower? And you know, I would assert that a master grower is always learning. And so you know, that's the complacency we have to overcome. Is not like hey, we're here to to tell you how to do your your job. We're here to give you another technology that lets you take your performance to the next level. And so that's really the the kind of inertia that we have to overcome. And so these sensors aren't simple, right? There's a lot of complexity that goes into mathematics and a lot of this kind of stuff that leads to the data. And then you get the data and then you have to determine what to do with it and make correlations and come up with conclusions based on those correlations. So was that obstacle one solution? Was that the, the software platform that you guys' team came up with, Arroyo? Was that a means to try to help with the adoption? And was that always the plan or did that kind of just come about based on um, your guys' getting exposure to the industry early on? Yeah, I mean, that's a a great question. A lot of the the early product work was done by uh, the the early product development work and and, uh, user experience work was done by the guy who was running the startup business for us, um, Steve Garrity, and then uh, an out-of-house consultant that, that we had that, and those two worked really well, well together to come up with a with a a target customer, and the customer we were targeting was what we called the divided grower, which was a grower that just had too much going on in his or her day, um, and didn't and and didn't have enough resources to to understand how to improve their yield and quality. And really, so Kellen, that's that's who we targeted with the the very first iteration of the product was just this person who had so much going on and they they needed a, a way to be able to see the data and consume it in a way that made sense and allows them to to improve and in some ways it was just allowing them to to you know they were always doing things to their plants they were always trying different nutrients they were trying different cultivars they were going in the garden and looking in their plants they were always doing this but what they didn't have was that number that you mentioned they didn't have a way to look at the actual data you know it, it's like a you know, getting binoculars or or X-ray vision and being able to see what's happening in the in the root zone of those plants, and then be able to correlate it to all the other stuff that they were seeing. So that was the initial thesis behind the product: was give people that visibility, and it'll change how they how they do their work. And there was actually one more little tweak, which was this this thing. It's become a bit of a cliche now, but we started out with it in the industry saying crop steering. Like, do you know? how to steer your crop and do you know when you steer your crop what's actually happening in that in that root zone and what we found was that that most people weren't doing that they weren't stressing the plants in early flower in the right way trying to figure out which cultivars respond the best to that and then and then implementing that as a program to get more uh, quality and yield out of their crops um but you know that that was the initial the initial goal wasn't even really to to track 
uh, yields that came later, like our integration with metric and stuff like that. It was just make stuff that was invisible, make it visible to the, to the customer. I think one of the things that I want to elaborate on is that master grower, right? They are head and shoulders above everyone else. And that experience cannot be taught or replicated. Exactly like you were saying, the tools are there to unlock the next level, right? Instead of, yeah. let's say, quote unquote, guessing, like a lot of people like to do in the industry because it's artisanal and like to touch it, you are helping replace that kind of unknown factor and making better decisions. It's a tool to help you make better decisions, not a tool to replace the individual that is master. And I think the one thing that I always find so fascinating is that tool is beneficial for the master grower, but you know who it's really beneficial for? Everyone else who doesn't have 40 years experience because this industry right. is growing extremely fast. And the one challenge we're finding is that the industry is going faster and the experience level can't match it because people just can't get 40 years experience overnight. And these tools help kind of come in and set that middle ground so that the company can scale and that the team can continue to succeed and the master grower doesn't have to replicate himself 10 times. Yeah. So you made a couple of really critical points there, Brian, and I want to pick on uh, up on both of them. One is uh, replication and scaling, and the other is the the art versus the science. And on that second one, the analogy that I love is I don't know. Have you guys ever been to these museums? You know, these impressionist museums in Europe, the Orsay, and or to to MoMA in uh, in New York and seen the impressionism there. That these are master artists. They changed the the course of history with their art, but their art was based on a technology. Up until that point in the late, you know, in the mid late 1800s, you did not have oil-based paint in a metal tube that you could take outside. And so you were always painting in a studio. So what did these guys do? Once the metal tubes showed up, once the technology made it possible for them, they went outside and they were inspired by nature and they changed the future of art. It took that master artist to be able to change what he or she was doing based on the technology that, that hadn't been there before. And so we're just the suppliers of the technology. The artists are the, the people who are working with new cultivars, coming up with new strains, uh, putting them into production, testing them and figuring out how to, how to make them run and, and uh, you know, get them into consumers' hands. You know, that, that's absolutely critical. The other thing that, that you mentioned about scalability is, a, is 100% true. Is, you know, okay, you can, you know, you can have a, a garage grow. You know, you can have a couple of flower rooms, you know, running 40 lights or whatever. That's not the same thing as having, you know, 80,000 foot, square foot indoor grow and being able to scale uh, what you're doing to actually uh, match the investment that it would take to get something like that running. I mean, growing 5,000 cannabis plants is not 10 times harder than growing 500. It's 100 times harder. And most people just don't, they just have no concept for that um, and no... No plan for scaling. I think you're exactly right on that, Brian. It's it's hard to really grasp, right? And my favorite question to ask them is, what happens if you're sick? Right? <laughs> yeah. like if, if you miss yeah. a day and yeah. let's say John comes in, who's a little more inexperienced and a couple of nutrients here, some extra water here. I mean, you're going to come back the next day and you're going to be like, what are we doing yeah. here? And I think yeah. that's the delicacy of these plants that we've talked about and the the leveling of the playing field, which is such a hard balance, right? Because it it kind of feels like to me, it's like a balance of ego and experience and understanding that the tool, again, is not there to replace them. It's to help unlock the ability so everyone can move forward. Yeah, I think, and the, the other thing that's tricky, because, and I love talking about these plants, I've grown them myself, you know, and it's they're, they're totally fascinating and really photogenic too. That's one of the reasons why cannabis, you know, is so 
on Instagram is such a big deal. It's a really photogenic plant. And the cannabis plant is, in many ways, it teaches people the wrong lessons. It's really drought tolerant. It's really resilient. And a lot of times, if you grow it, it's not so delicate that you're not going to get anything. And so a lot of these people, you know, invested in cultivation facilities, got out to, you know, got plants in. They didn't die because usually cannabis plants don't die. They got some harvest out of it. Market prices in California were 2,500 bucks a pound at wholesale. And they said, I'm a genius. You know, I'm, I'm doing awesome here. And at that market price, they probably were, but that's not the future of cannabis. I mean, everybody knows that uh, where, where prices are in, in California right now and in other markets. So that's another thing. It's tricky. The cannabis plant a lot of times teach people the wrong lessons. So um, <laughs> that's such a good point. So adopting this kind of software helps growers get an edge on efficiencies, improvements, and all these things. What is it like when you guys first deploy it with a new master grower? What's that learning curve like? Do you guys deploy like the full por- portfolio of sensors? So all of them at once, or is it kind of like a slow rollout? Can you kind of walk us through that initial phase of someone getting their hands on on this platform and all of these sensors? Yeah, yeah. Uh, sure. So the easiest way to think about it is just maybe to talk about a hypothetical facility that's like 20,000 square feet, okay? Not massive, not tiny. It's just kind of a midsize uh, indoor grow. So what we would do in a place like that, and, and first of all, I mean, a lot of people ask us about price. It's pretty straightforward. For a facility of that size, they're probably going to drop on the sensors. And these are, so these are Bluetooth enabled wireless sensors that are deployed in their facility for all the parameters that I mentioned earlier. You know, you're probably looking at maybe 80 or 90K for, for something like that. Okay. So it's not nothing, but it's also relatively small when you compare it to all the investments you've already made in lighting, fertigation, uh, substrate, you know, all of these, uh, these things. And, and that's just one time to buy the equipment. The subscription for a facility of that size might be, you know, for data storage analytics, um, you know, the, the, the cloud platform might be somewhere in the range of, I don't know, call it 1500 bucks a month or something like that. Okay. So those are some, just some general prices of what it costs to deploy these things. The time it takes to deploy and how they're typically deployed, which is what you asked, Kellen, is, you know, the sensors themselves just, they, they come provisioned to the facility. And then you just use a mobile app to, to say, hey, this is substrate sensor is going in this irrigation zone in this room. Uh, this climate station is going in this, in this room. And then you go around and you assign the sensors to rooms and zones. And for a 20,000 square foot facility, that, that may take six or seven hours. Okay. So in one day you have deployed everything across the facility, data is flowing into the system. And um, what we do with that master grower is we say, don't change anything. Okay. Don't do anything different. We need to basically set a baseline for how you like to uh, to grow your plants. And, and, um, and then once we go through a full flower cycle and we have that baseline, then we have uh, crop consultants actually talk to talk with the grower and, you know, we meet with them ha- however often they want and and say, hey, well, you know, what we noticed is early in flower, you're irrigating your plants this way. Have you ever considered doing this way and see if you get higher yields and how open minded are you uh, to that? And so then we try to change one thing and see the impact that it has. And usually within over the course of a year, the lowest increase in yield that we've seen is 5% uh, from taking this steady approach. But we've some, seen some places that have been able to increase yields 50, 60, 
80, 100% by doing this process of monitoring the crop cycle, working with our crop consultants, and then improving the, the outcomes. And Jordan, I think who you mentioned, Jordan at uh, Jordan Zager at Dewey, you know, we, we just finished uh, working with them on the first uh, batch. We were really able to dial in all their parameters and they seen, a, they, you know, so I'd invite anybody to ask Jordan what their experience was with that because they were able to see a huge jump in yield at the the same or improved quality. And they're more of a research organization. You know, they, they're more uh, focused on um, genetics and, and that, but they still have a production side. And any increase in production is going to have a, a, a huge impact on uh, on profitability. So I don't know, did I, did I answer your question, Kellen? You did. <laughs> you did, thank you. <laughs> is, it, is it hard for the businesses, I mean, I, I don't want to take this in two different ways. Is it hard for the businesses to implement these sensors, to spend the 90K and the 1500 a month, and then not to make any changes for an entire growing cycle? Because essentially, it's just an investment into technology where the results will be in the distance future versus in this industry, I feel like a lot of people are looking for immediate results, right? I spent 90K, Scott, like I'm not going to get any results for for one turn. Like how, how do you overcome that? Is it an ROI conversation? How do you overcome those type of obstacles? I mean, you're right though. I mean, Brian, some customers just say, just say, well, I mean, that's fine, but we just, we just want to get started right away. I mean, and that, that's fine with us. It's much nicer to get a baseline and also to take a really measured approach to, to improvement because we're looking for continuous improvement. We're looking for marginal gains that will aggregate over time. And that's, that, that's the great thing. When you talk about a master grower, the great thing about, about crop cycle improvement software is that if you implement a change there and it has a positive effect, you get that change forever because it's it's written in the code. It's written in the recipe that, that's in the system. And so there are, people are impatient. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, you're right. But try to walk them through, like, let's make measured changes and build on our successes rather than, than try and go after a sugar high that isn't sustainable because those changes aggregate or those improvements aggregate over time. And a 5% improvement may not sound like much, but if you go back and look at corn yields, for example, corn yields out of you know the U.S., government has this data going back in the 1800s, corn yields are eight to 10 times higher than they were right before the start of World War II. Okay. The same is going to be true of cannabis, but the improvement in yield is probably going to ramp up a lot higher, a lot faster because we have, you know, we have, uh, 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 you know, these, uh, software and technology like you've been talking about. I, I think the 5%, when people hear that, they always think, oh, that's so little, but you're right. And then on a bigger scale, it it continues to go forward. And who in this industry couldn't benefit from an extra 5% yield? And I, I want to take it the conversation slightly differently. When you're having these conversations with these operators, do you look at right. your customer, customer and your user slightly differently? For example, do you look at your customer being, let's say, the CFO, the person making the decisions from a financial standpoint, understanding the investment, and then the user is the master? Do you look at it kind of like that or do you look at it differently? No, that's how we uh, look at it. Although that's probably the biggest divide in the entire industry is the huge gap between uh, production, you know, the the um, COO or, you know, the VP of cultivation and the CFO. They're just miles apart. And, you know, the CFO tends to treat cultivation as some kind of black box that he or she can't really control and would they get what they get. And, you know, cultivation tends to treat finance as just, you know, the piggy bank that, that's always trying to shut them down and, and um, reduce their budgets and stuff. That's, you know, that's not productive. And 
what we want to do is is allow CFOs to understand cultivation because that's what's going to drive their uh, their earnings as a company. And just as an example, you know, and Air Wellness is a is you know we we have a lot of Air Wellness sites on Arroyo and love those guys. They're doing great work. I and I watched the conversation that you had with uh, David Gobert over over there. And he's coming into the company. He's focused on on three things. He said he's focusing their inventory is too high, so we got to look at that for cash gross margin. You know, we're 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 eating some price decreases on the retail side. We don't really need to to um, to eat. And and then uh, you know he he mentioned quality as well and expenses. He he just said they're too you know expenses are too high at the company. The thing about that is the single biggest lever financially that any cannabis producer has. So I'm, I'm not really talking about brand-only companies that don't grow plants, but that's not the reality of the industry today. But if you're a plant-touching company, the biggest lever that you have for increasing your profitability is getting your yields up. And that's irrespective of that extra gram you got in yield, whether whether the market can absorb it. Okay, It, it does have a bigger impact if you can sell that at a market price, your increased yield. But whether you're market uh, constrained or not, that is going to be number one, two, and three on the list of of getting earnings up is improving your efficiency and productivity as a as a company. And a lot of CFOs don't appreciate that, and they just they're just like, we get what we get. Another one that I know I'm maybe belaboring the point a little bit here, Brian, but there's a lot of companies that do mixed light growing. Okay, so that's even more of a black box because you got to rely on the weather for part of your light. And cannabis is a massively light loving plant absolutely loves light and you're you know one percent more light is typically in most cases going to mean one percent more yield well this last year in california for for a lot of the winter season super overcast lots of storms lots of rain and just didn't have the light intensities that they had before so these companies that are growing in greenhouses and mixed light scenarios the cfo is looking at, at cultivation like hey your productivity is way down and the cultivation is saying well i didn't get as much light so of course, my productivity is down. You know, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, well, this is having a huge impact on our cash flow and profitability. And the CFO doesn't even know, doesn't even have a model for saying, well, these were our light intensities. What should our yields be? No idea, you know? And and these are the types of things that make those conversations divisive. But if you if you implement the system the right way, cultivation can set up a plan for improve, improving yields that's so rock solid that they can work with the CFO so that it actually gets modeled into pro forma income statements in the future because they're confident they're going to hit their numbers. And that's just such a rare scenario in the industry right now. Yeah, there's such a big divide between the two. And some of the things you said, I wish we could just hold that that whole statement and just let everyone hear that again, because it's such a big challenge to have the CFO and let's say the master grow on two different pages, exactly like you described, because what tends to happen from our experience is that they just say, do more, do faster. And those variables aren't necessarily good from an efficiency standpoint because if you're just doing more and you're doing faster and your efficiency is, let's say, decreasing or staying the same, I mean, you're burning you're burning money on a bunch of different ways that you could be really maximizing on other sides. Yep. Yeah, well said. You want to hop in, Kellen? Yeah, I was just going to say, there's also a disconnect too, right, with the CFOs and the master growers just because it is essentially running multiple businesses, right? Like the master grower is running the agricultural side of the business and the CFO is typically looking at the consumer packaged goods side of the business because that's where the cash is coming from. And so this whole thing is that also creates the disconnect. And so 
With that being said, there's also another portion of cultivation that isn't cultivation. It's the actual preparation after you cut the plant down. So is there any areas that you guys are involved in that helps with kind of the process of cutting the plant down and getting it into a jar where it actually looks really pretty and and has all those qualities that consumers are expecting from the plant once it's packaged up? Yeah. So one kind of coincidence in in this whole process of of us as a as a, a business um, working with the cannabis industry is that we also had this side of our business that makes a water activity meter. And some people are familiar with this in the industry and some people aren't. Water activity is just a measure of the energy status of water in a sample. And the way you measure it is you put it in a closed chamber and measure the equilibrium relative humidity of that sample. It doesn't matter how much sample is in there, double the amount of the sample, the water activity is going to be the same. And just for reference, if a cannabis bud has a water activity of 0.6 or below, nothing can ever grow on it. No mold, yeast, bacteria, nothing. And it doesn't matter. This is true of all cultivars. It's true of all foods as well. So it's a, it's, it's a really it's a hard number to understand, but it's really easy to apply because that 0.6 number ends up being really, really important. And so we make these instruments and they're lab devices. We make them here at our factory, at our at our plant. We send them out. And then every time you're drying a batch post-harvest and you're like, hey, is it dry enough? You're not sitting down there snapping twigs and like doing the snap tests and stuff. You're putting it in an actual analytical device and verifying scientifically with a primary method, yes, this is safe from mold and yeast and and it's okay to go in the package. And you get a couple of benefits from that. Well, three main benefits that I can think of. The first is the safety of the product for sure. It's never gonna cause any illness. Now, it's not testing, is there bacteria? Is there mold? It's testing, is it safe from from growth? So so that's, that's the safety that you get out of this number. The next thing you get is consistency. And this is such a hard thing in the industry right now. Growing the same plant in the same way, and that's what we do on the cultivation side, drying and curing it in the same way in the post-harvest side, the consumer is going to have that consistent experience that's so often missing. So that consistency is another one. And then the last one is is hugely important too, which is almost all cannabis is still over-dried in this industry. So if you get that consistency and are drying to, it doesn't have to be 0.6. You can set your spec at 0.55 or whatever you you feel is best for that cultivar. But if you're being consistent about that and eliminating those over-dried batches, your dry weight yields are going to go up 1% to 2%. So that 20,000 square foot facility that I told you about, each time they pull down a harvest in a room, it's about $300,000, okay? And let's say they have nine rooms, and they're they're pulling down a harvest every week. That means that roughly their their um, revenue is fifty two weeks times three hundred thousand dollars is you know call it whatever eighteen million or something a year in revenue. If they do those things in post harvest, that's another you know on eighteen million in revenue. It's another hundred eighty thousand dollars, you know one hundred eighty to three hundred thousand dollars in saleable product that goes out out the door, you know, on an $18 million business, that's huge operating margin points right there. So yeah, there, there is that other side of the business, which is, which is dealing with post-harvest and, you know, consistency, quality, and yield in that area as well. Do you find it more beneficial in the sales approach to tell them it is lost revenue? Like, like how, how do you phrase that for them to, for it to register, to recognize that implementing this technology can help them unlock these unknowns? 
Yeah, it's literally water that goes out their chimney stack. It's like dollar bills that just float out into space. And that tends to be the image that, that gets them to see, yeah, this is this is something that could really help us. For sure. So we've talked about technology. And sometimes when people hear technology, they automatically assume this isn't for me, Scott. This is for the big MSOs. This is for the $50 million facility. How small of a grow would benefit from technology like you've described today? Well, I, I think in many ways, it's a lot easier for a small grow to implement the technology because the cost is tiny. You know, we're talking about, let's say you got you got a couple rooms and, you know, let's say you got eight tables in these rooms and I don't know, you're running like 20 lights or something. I mean, the whole system cost is like 4,000 bucks. And then, I don't know, it's maybe 50 bucks a month or, or something like that. And initially, Brian, that, that's, that was like our core customer when we launched. The big guys wouldn't give us the time of day. They, they were like, well, we don't know anybody else who uses this system. And, and so the, the small guys were the ones, were actually our core customer to start out in that first year. Um, and then we kind of built our, our way up from there. So yeah, we don't sell our system to unlicensed uh, uh, growers right now. We have decided to focus on uh, white market producers. So, you know, part of the process is, hey, what, what's your what's your license number? But, you know, any grower with a license um, could benefit from this. And, and from our, and just my experiences that we start out with the small growers. Are there lessons from ag tech that outside industry could, is eventually going to apply into the cannabis industry that you think is in the pipeline for the future roadmap? Well, you know, one thing one thing that's coming in, well, maybe this is the opposite, but I, I think eventually AI and, and machine learning will make its way into this industry from, from other industries. I think it's a lot of that is misunderstood. You know, people talk about the potential and and really, you know, we're still at the level of doing basic modeling and anybody who claims to have an AI enabled system is is really just kind of blowing smoke. It's all vaporware right now. People talk about it so much because it's chat GPT and all this stuff is super hot, but it doesn't exist in this industry yet. One thing that I think in cannabis that will go out, well, one thing that I think will be true in the, in the future is that because cannabis is the world's biggest cash crop, it's not just the world's biggest cash crop. I mean, there, most estimates are around 300 billion globally, white market, black market cannabis, largest cash crop in the world. Okay. Roughly around 30 billion, you know, 30 to 40 billion is white market right now in that in that group. But then if you do that, look at how much land is used to produce that, that amount, it, it's even more extreme, because there's very little land that's used to, to produce cannabis. So because of the intricacies of the plant and how valuable it is, there are going to be a lot of technologies that start out in cannabis, but it's going to end, be, end up being the linchpin for horticulture globally, because these technologies are going to have to come in and establish themselves in cannabis and eventually become inexpensive enough that then they work for tomatoes and cucumbers and peppers and all of these other traditional horticultural crops that are growing in controlled environments. There is a lot of really cool stuff happening in controlled environment ag, you know, in, in like the Gulf states that are investing in it. Um, you know, Holland, Israel are, are huge uh, technology hubs for controlled environment ag. It's just, it's not as intensive as what's happening in cannabis because a tomato plant is not worth $250, but a, a cannabis plant is. So uh, today, I don't know if this answers your question. <laughs> today, well, I mean, we could say like, what do you, what do you think a pound of cannabis is going to cost 10 years from now? And I think, what you know, you I've heard people. Yeah. What is your number? <laughs> uh, so there's a lot of people who think it's going to be the same. I don't think it's going to be the same, especially if we have federal. And the reason why is that 
the big ag players have not started to operate in this space yet. And by big ag, I'm not talking about the you know MSOs and people operating on that level, Argo. which I think are a little bit more about retail, um, you know, and dispensaries than they are about production. When you see a company like the Wonderful Company or Driscolls or Winset Farms, or you know, there, there's these companies out there, and and most people don't know about them because they're kind of under the radar, but they have, you know, huge uh, holdings, huge resources. The reason they don't do anything in cannabis is because it's not federally legal. When big ag starts to come into cannabis, that's when there will be a, a sea change. There's always going to be craft. There's always going to be indoor growing because you have to be able to control how this plant is grown to be able to get the chemovar, to, to be able to get the, the chemical profile consistent. And so it's it's a unique plant. My number is, is indoor 10 years from now is going to be, you know, 300 bucks. It's not 30. Um, it's never going to be 30 because the inputs, you know, you just can't produce a pound for $30 indoor. It can't be done. Uh, the electricity costs and nutrient costs. But I'm curious. So you guys, what do you think? Uh, where do you think it's going to be? Uh, I mean, I have no idea, but I can tell you that after speaking with Graham and, Gla- and Glasshouse, I can only imagine what they're going to do from a price standpoint, just given the size of their green fist. Are you familiar with their facility? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yep, I've is, been there before. Is it spectacular or is it is it not as crazy as it looks? I mean, my understanding is that they have a million and a half square feet under production and they have capacity to get out to five million. And one of the benefits they have is that uh, is that their their technology platform there is straight up Dutch greenhouse production. So I think they have tremendous potential at Glasshouse. But, you know. I can also tell you from having been there, they don't they don't do substrate sensing on their plants as of as of today. And from my perspective, if you take something like that that's producing over five million square feet and you increase the output one percent, that has a massive impact on the profitability of a company. I mean, in glass houses, you know, they they're public, they announce results and they're they're headed in the right direction. I respect those guys a lot. I think they're I think they're doing amazing work. Um, but the scale just gets to the point, which is, do uh, these producers have a plan for crop cycle improvement? So we grew this cultivar at 23.4 grams last, uh, you know, square foot. That's a good yield, by the way, per square foot for a greenhouse without supplemental light, you know, low 20s. That's that's great. How do we get it to 25? How do we get it to 27? Because because corn does that year after year. That that's the crazy thing about corn. Corn yields are still going up linearly at 3% a year, you know, 80 years after the agricultural revolution started, still going up and it's just a straight line. Cannabis is going to do the same thing and all companies need to have a plan for doing that. Even ones that are as amazing and have the co- production capacity of a glasshouse. Graham, you got to call Scott. Future roadmap, is there any other substrates that you guys are looking to try to incorporate from a measurement perspective? Maybe like the cannabinoids or something like that from the plant? I mean, so that's that's an interesting one, Kellen. I've talked to people in the industry to to see what they think. It's it's a little hard to get people interested in on-site testing of, of cannabinoids because they have to send it to a lab anyway. So they're going to incur that cost no matter what. And they're like, are we patient enough to just wait to get the results back? Or do we want to spin up an, an entire test lab here at the What about facility? a sensor, though? I don't think it can be done. <laughs> I'm I'm a little, I'm kind of skeptical of that. I mean, if somebody has some tech out there that can do it, probably, 
you know, one that would be a lot more interesting uh, to me as far as horticulture is just a um, ion-specific electrode looking at uh, concentrations of the 15 minerals that are in uh, fertigation water. Okay, so if you could test those in the substrate in situ, you know, we're talking about NPK, but we're also, you know, all the, the, the micronutrients, molybdenum, boron, like all these little tiny ones that people are like, oh, is it toxic for my plant? You know, right now we're looking at EC and it's just an amalgamation of all those nutrients. If you could get a sensor that would go into the substrate and then look at each of those individual 15 ions in solution, that would be incredible. Now, now we're, now we're cooking with fire, right? We're going to have to cut it that would, part it so would no be amazing. It. <laughs> well, the, I mean, this is where the experience in Holland comes in. You know, the Dutch have been trying to do this for 20 years uh, because Sounds it would easy. be a game changer. Yeah. And, you know, and they have a sensor that works for like a day or two days, but then it gets fouling. It gets, um, you know, things starting to collect on the sensor and then the readings get off. And it, it's just a really, really hard problem to solve. But cannabinoids, I, I mean, sure, I think, the, the thing that we're looking at that, that we think has a lot of potential, Kellen, is just machine vision. So being able to measure a crop and the biomass accumulation of the crop using something like a LiDAR sensor on an iPhone. So uh, we bought a small company last year uh, called uh, Farm Vision, and we're working on uh, the capability of doing that. You just take out your iPhone, you scan your plants every day. We think it's really important that the sensor be something that everybody already has in their pocket, not something you have to install on the ceiling of every room. And if you were to do that and then monitor the biomass accumulation, you can get things like plant height, you can get leaf area index. If we did it right, you could count buds. So do bud count and bud sizing, which would give a harvest prediction. So so we think there's some really great applications for machine vision. We don't have anything out there yet. I'm not making any you know product announcements or anything, but but if there <laughs> is one that you'll see from us over the next uh, over the next year that's kind of outside our core expertise on these you know substrate sensors, climate sensors, it is probably going to be machine vision. What about expanding to post-cultivation, specifically in extraction? Any interest in taking sensors into the extraction space? I mean, a, a little bit. Uh, I mean, and Kellen, I think you have a pretty deep expertise in that area. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we do, for sure. Uh, yeah. We have an expertise in process analytical technology for applying that kind of similar spectroscopy-based technology um, yeah. that measures that kind of stuff in line. So, Scott, what's, sure. what's the radar for that? I mean, so for, for extraction stuff, we don't do anything with it right now. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the closest analog we have is we do have some process, um, some inline continuous, uh, you know, continuous process sensor type stuff we use in the food industry. But it's not something we're super focused on right now, but, but it is area that I'm happy to discuss with you guys opportunities. It's probably more of a case where you guys would tell me the things you're interested in. And I can see if we have some kind of core technologies that that overlap with what you're looking for. I think for us, we're always focused on sensors, data, and improving decision-making because coming from outside industry and recognizing that everyone else has these established tools to help them make informed good decisions for QAQC internally is something that I think Kellen and I are just very passionate about because it helps the industry as a whole, specifically the, the end customer, right? If you can get a consistent yeah. product that is safe, that is what you're looking for every single time, that's high margins, everyone's winning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I know we're running out of time, but I just want to tell you, give you another stat that might be surprising. We've done testing here. We, we actually have a part of our food science uh, group that, that did testing on cannabis and how uh, cannabinoids and terpenes degrade over time. 
something that most people don't understand, but is crystal clear in our research. Most half of the terpenes in a cannabis, in cannabis flower that's being sold, eight weeks after it's packaged, half of those terpenes are gone. So a completely sealed package, there's a, you know, oxidative degradation of the of the terpenes is, is a real thing. And half of them are gone. Now, terpenes are a critical piece of the consumer experience to interact with the cannabinoid and with body chemistry to create that psychoactive. They're, half of them are gone. Most people don't understand this at all. And it's not in any of the state regs or, or anything. But but this, you know, things like this are part of the industry growing up is, is to say, like, how do we address that? And how should we move forward based on having that knowledge? And just it's just like you said, Brian, it's the data. It's getting the data and getting correct data, which is why, you know, for us, that that data quality at that at the point where the sensor hits the hits the substrate or, uh, you know, touches the sample. That's that's what we're uh, focused on science sensors and, and uh, software. I think that's the perfect way to end it. So Scott, for, for those who want to get in touch, they want to learn more and they want to look to implement sensors into their cultivation, where can they find you? Yeah, uh, just at Arroya, A-R-O-Y-A dot I-O is our, is our website. Tons of information on there, tons of, of great resources, uh, virtual seminars. Every week we do something called office hours where our crop consultants actually take questions from people. So you can just... Uh, log in, post a question, and our, our crop consultants will go over it. And those Office Hours episodes, if you just look for Office Hours Arroyo on YouTube, you'll see all the old ones up there. We just have a ton of information. And there's even some great information on the website about our like social impact and things that we're doing. Uh, we did a project called Freedom Grams that... Uh, that and with Last Prisoner Project that that won an award last year, we uh, did a collaboration with Cookies and Cookies University and training up new people on the science behind cannabis cultivation. That's on the website as well. So, um, so just encourage anybody who's interested to go over and take a look at that stuff. Awesome. Yeah, we'll link it up in the show notes. Thanks for taking the time. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, Scott. Yeah. Likewise, guys. If you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, it's Justin Benton, host of the Miracle Plant Podcast, where we discuss this miracle plant that goes by so many names and how it's helping people in so many extraordinary ways. So if you love this plant and you want to hear a story that tugs on those heartstrings and learn more about this plant, then head on over to the Miracle Plant Podcast. You'll be glad you did.